When many of us in clinical medicine think back to our own training years, we often recall interacting with master clinicians who were skilled diagnosticians, thoughtful teachers, and role models of a compassionate bedside manner. What lessons do these master clinicians have to teach the rest of us in terms of how they learn, how their minds work, and how they became so good at what they do? I'm Vivek Murthy. Welcome to the Master Clinician Project. What follows is an interview with Dr. Denise Davis. Dr. Davis is a general internist at the San Francisco VA Medical Center and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She completed her BA and MD degrees in a combined six-year program at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, then completed her internship at the Kansas University Medical Center and medicine residency at the Kaiser Foundation Hospital in San Francisco. She practiced primary care medicine in private practice for several years after her training, before joining faculty at UCSF. Dr. Davis is a nationally recognized expert in clinical medicine and communication skills. She sees patients at the San Francisco VA General Medical Clinic and serves as Associate Director of the Center of Excellence in Primary Care Education, where she teaches workshops on improving communication skills and addressing structural inequities in medical education and healthcare delivery. She's the recipient of several teaching awards and has been recognized nationally as a masterful educator and a champion of medical training in diversity, equality, and inclusion. In this conversation, Dr. Davis identifies common threads of personality and habit that have been present since early in her life and which continue to inform her learning and professional development. She talks about the importance of recognizing and breaking open implicit bias, which she clarifies is not a moral failing, but rather a shared challenge of the human condition that we all grapple with. She also shares life adversities and talks about how they've informed and continue to inform her identity as a person and physician. Her narrative contains shimmering pearls about confronting bias and adversity and about dismantling the structures of inequity that continue to exist within medical education and patient care. What also emerges from this conversation is a portrait of Dr. Davis as a phenomenal clinician and humanist who has much to teach all of us. I hope you find this interview as illuminating and inspiring as I did. Dr. Davis, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'd like to start with a general question. As you look back at your early career, during and just after your medical training, do you think you had any specific personality traits, learning habits, or clinical behaviors early on that you think were important in growing your clinical foundation and expertise? Looking back, I think curiosity is one of the qualities that I had and still have that might be a superpower. In my early days as a high schooler, as um, a BAMD student, University of Missouri in Kansas City, I took delight, sometimes obsessive delight, in learning more about medicine. And I, I know that that continues to help me. Some of the material that I learned very early on continues to rise in my mind when there's a difficult diagnosis. I can even see the page of Harrison's Internal Medicine in my mind and the photos 
it was laid down um, very early, but that continues to, to help me as a clinician. So I'm hearing that curiosity and enthusiasm for learning have been common threads throughout. Do you think you've always had that with you from childhood onwards, or is that something that came later on? I don't remember being three or four years old, but my mother says that I begged for her to continue reading, 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 reading. And I remember in elementary school when other students were talking to each other or, uh, you know, making paper airplanes or spitballs, I was reading. I I was just always eager to learn more uh, about the world and about people and about human biology. And I really became interested in medicine in reading my mother's nursing textbooks. She had stored at the head of her bed, and I was fascinated, and I, I was drawn in from the, that very moment, and then knew at 12 that I would go into medicine and actually chose my medical school when I was 12. Uh, so it, it, it goes back much farther than medical school. And when you entered medical training and were busy on the wards learning the practical aspects of medical care, how did your curiosity and enthusiasm for learning manifest? I can remember during my training years in internal medicine that no matter how many patients I admitted or how tired I was, I would go to the medical library, which I had access to 24 hours a day, and I would always read because I wanted to be able to present at morning report with a strong foundation of information about the clinical syndrome. And I always learned something and I'm also competitive. So that that's another quality that I think has really helped me in medical education and in my work as a clinician educator. And as your training ended and you started your first job in faculty practice, where was that? Were were you in academics or private practice first? I was a staff physician for the Kaiser Permanente Group. I needed some time to mature, and that was good for me. And as you transitioned out of your training years, when there were layers of supervision and graduated autonomy and into independent practice... Your joy of learning and thirst for knowledge, were you able to maintain that? Did it change or was it the same as it always was? Uh, there's more just-in-time learning in private practice, really, when, when there was a question from a patient or a question that I had, I would read. And I would add that uh, a very different source of, of information became a part of my daily practice and that is trusted consultants. So having conversations with gastroenterologists, cardiologists, neurologists, who on a daily basis were immersed in their subspecialty, that provided me with information that I couldn't possibly extract in five or 10 minutes of reading in between patients. So as you're reflecting back on your early life in medicine, I'm hearing that curiosity was a common thread, as was joy for learning, on-the-job learning, consistent reading centered around your patients and competitiveness. 
Can you think of any other personality traits or learning habits that were foundational for you? I think carefulness and conscientiousness also that manifested and still manifests in checking again, checking again, checking again. Did I really get it right? Did I put in the right medication order? Are there any negative drug-drug interactions? Did I remember to tell Mr. Smith about his consultation with this subspecialist or to wear a mask <laughs> you know, during the COVID pandemic? So that, that kind of conscientiousness and carefulness uh, continue to be important to me. I'm grateful for the energy that I inherited. Both of my parents were extremely energetic people and not unusual for us to stay up, you know, until two or three o'clock in the morning working on a project until it was really polished and that we felt set, not perfect, but satisfied with the results and prepared. I, I thank my parents for that. They annoyed me so much early in my life. But I, as I go on and, and I'm now a mature adult, uh, I'm very, very grateful for their model. But part of it is just, I, I think, um, a kind of constitution that is a privilege. It's an unearned advantage to have a lot of energy uh, for work. Well, Dr. Davis, I really appreciate you looking back to your training years and early career and examining these common threads that have been there all along. For our listeners who are meeting you for the first time, you are an expert in communication skills in the clinical setting, and part of your work involves coaching trainees on communication skills that improve patient experiences and the quality and safety of the care they receive. As you think back on your training years and early career, did you have any specific experiences that helped you realize the importance of getting better as a communicator? Well, I think about diabetes, and the chronic management of diabetes, and as hard as I tried to calculate exactly the right dose of insulin, what mattered a lot more was understanding the patient's understanding and negotiating a plan instead of downloading a plan. I also think about the importance of establishing trust, which honestly, I, I had very little sense of. I thought that trust was given to me as a junior physician. Trust is earned. So going back to the diabetes example, perhaps insulin is not the priority or the preference for the patient and continuing to calculate the dose really has so little bearing on whether or not the patient's Diabetes is truly controlled and helping them avoid the target organ damage that's uh, all too common uh, when that chronic illness is not managed skillfully. That's a really helpful example of how relationship building is the foundation of what we do. When you think back, can you remember any specific interactions with patients or mentors that made you realize Maybe my efficacy is limited not by my understanding of a disease, but rather by my understanding of the patient as a partner. I'm smiling. Dr. Marjorie Searidge, who was such a powerful mentor for me and remains so even after her death, 
She was a general internist and a hematologist, one of a few women in academic medicine in the institution where I attended medical school. She left difficult encounters with patients, and outside the room, she would ask me, what do you think really happened in there? Really asking me to reflect on a meta level about the communication, about the cues, about the clues in the relationship with the patient. She was deeply humanistic. It was so much more powerful in her asking the question rather than just telling me. I really began to think about what did really happen in there that is going to influence the sacred doctor-patient relationship and ultimately, often, the outcome. I think that's a really powerful example of having someone who role modeled that behavior for you, of making a practice of analyzing interpersonal interactions on that meta level. Once you had that conception in your mind of the importance of getting better as a communicator, of analyzing for meaning in your interactions beyond just the surface level, how did you go about doing it? Did you practice by seeing patients and getting feedback from them, or did you attend formal didactics on communication? We can learn a lot from our mental health colleagues who've spent a lot of time thinking about communication, which includes not only speaking, but listening. And I'm very grateful that they were willing to accept my pleas, my calls for help in managing patients who had difficulty either accepting an illness, managing it, or managing their relationship with me as their primary care physician. Those psychiatrists and psychologists really were so helpful to me as sounding boards and their generosity in never tiring or um, how much they helped me be a more sophisticated and effective physician, they were extremely helpful. I'll then tell you about the formal training I had with the Academy on Communication and Healthcare which was a distance, is a distanced fellowship. It was slated to be a three-year program. It was a four-year program for me, and I needed extra time, and they had and still have the flexibility allowing people to be self-directed learners and to um, engage in a process that is tailored to the needs of the healthcare professional. And in my ongoing work in this nonprofit, I now mentor others, which means I learn a lot, right? And I continue to reinforce my skills in communication locally and in projects nationally, fundamental communication for healthcare professionals, but also communication for 2.0 topics like conflict or disclosing errors or racial equity and inclusion, being an upstander to gender microaggressions. These are all domains of communication in healthcare and have so much to do with the learning environment. I, I'm eternally grateful for that training 
and for the ongoing collegial relationships with um, people across the country and, and across the world who are involved in that nonprofit. I really appreciate that response. It sounds like you had experiential lateral learning from mental health colleagues who talked you through certain situations or communication challenges, but you also blended that with a formal didactic component over the years to learn the art and science of communication from experts. For our listeners out there who are medical trainees or faculty uh, who are trying to get better as communicators, might you be able to share certain tips, exercises, or wisdom to emulate and help them get started? The beginning matters. The beginning of a conversation for human beings who make a judgment very early on whether the other person is a friend or foe, that beginning really matters. So though we may think the person knows us or remembers us from a previous clinical encounter or a previous teamwork encounter, the humility that's manifest in reintroducing ourselves and our roles can be so helpful for safety, for quality, for earning trust, and then following that introduction, the warm greeting, the small talk, and then getting the other person's agenda first before I offer my own is wise leadership, it's wise clinical practice, it's wise teamwork, and it allows us the chance of a win within the first 60 seconds of a conversation no matter with whom we are having that conversation. So I'm, I'm hoping to pass that on to our listeners today. Those are really rich and specific take-home points, that in any interaction, the beginning matters, a warm and friendly salutation matters, and seeking out the patient's agenda before presenting our own really matters. Are there any other examples of fundamentally important communication exercises or practices that our listeners should know? I'd say the beauty of open-ended questions. Tell me all about your diabetes management from the beginning up until now. What should I know? That's very different than the who, what, where, when, <laughs> why that I was trained to ask. And I find that Using those open-ended questions has allowed me to make diagnoses in a clinical setting that have been elusive for my colleagues. And with those that I train, I educate, that I work with, it also allows them to share information and feel comfortable doing so that I wouldn't be able to formulate the very specific questions for. I continue to be uh, amazed by and grateful for remembering to ask open-ended questions. I really appreciate these specific and actionable communication behaviors. Open-ended questions are just incredibly valuable in the clinical setting, I agree. They give implicit permission for patients to open up in a safe space because it asks them to tell us what they feel is important and because it communicates that you genuinely want to hear their testimonies and that this isn't just a goal-directed conversation. 
I love these examples and I think our listeners will as well. Not only clinically, but with learners. Tell me up until now what your experiences have been with patients with respiratory failure. I'm really curious. What have you learned over time and what would you like to learn more about? So different than give me the differential diagnosis. You know, I think the ethic behind that question is so incredible too, because we should approach learners with the same sense of open-ended understanding and non-judgmentalism with which we approach our patients. That's a wonderful message. Moving to our next question, I feel like so much of communication training during medical school and residency aims to fight back on that notion that great communicators are born rather than made. Those training sessions really reinforce the idea that interpersonal communication is something that we all need to get better at, because if we don't, our effectiveness as clinicians and patient advocates will be fundamentally limited. So I think my question to you is, what messages do you have for trainees or faculty out there today who have not yet considered that improving their communication skills should be as important a goal for them as attaining mastery in the knowledge base or procedural aspects of their chosen fields? Excellence is impossible without communication skills. Highly refined. When we think about the most common procedures in medicine, you mentioned technical things. Actually, the most common procedure in medicine is having a conversation, whether it's an interview in the clinical setting or whether it's a conversation with a team member. In primary care, it's been estimated that full-time clinicians will lead, carry out about 200,000 face-to-face interviews in their career. I, I can't think of any clinician who um, is going to perform more than 200,000 procedures. That, that's just not the way that medicine works. So in thinking about communication as a procedure, one that can lead to clinical excellence, I'm hoping that those I train and my colleagues will continue to learn and grow in a way that will help them be successful. And can you think of any other examples from your own training years or from trainees you've mentored in recent years where you've seen that either your performance or the performance of someone you've trained has been limited until some fundamental communication challenge was surmounted? Thinking about a nurse practitioner trainee that I worked with a few years ago, this person is now faculty at the VA. I'm grateful for that. She was extremely open to coaching, and in an encounter with an African-American man with prostate cancer, she was really open to being coached about the communication skills that earn trust. The patient had come from another institution seeking care at the VA because of mistrust. The patient had prostate cancer, uh, an illness more common and more virulent among African-American men. So the stakes were high to engage him. And in hearing her communicate with him in such a skillful and empathetic way, 
and allowing him to tell his story about mistrust and how he was seeking a relationship with a clinician and an institution that he could rely upon and that would treat him in a respectful way and that would engage in a sharing of decision-making in such a high-stakes situation. It was not only moving to me, but the ultimate impact on the patient who said that he wished that this trainee could be his clinician for life. There was no greater reward for me as a teacher, as a coach, as a mentor, as a Johnny Appleseed of communication training. That's a great example. I think it shows how investment in a patient, demonstrating that you really care for someone and their narrative and what they're going through, is an essential prerequisite to the prescriptions or labs or referrals that we do. I think the next question that stems from that is, for the trainees out there who might have been exposed to the nihilistic view towards the prevailing trends in healthcare, that is, more clinical volume, less time per patient, more patients or complexity per clinic block or ward service. What do you say to the trainees who ask, how am I supposed to find time to make excellence in communication or practice that's sustainable throughout the day or week or month? For the trainees or faculty out there who feel overburdened, how might you help them see that communication excellence is really a source of renewal of professional purpose rather than an additional demand on their time? Yes. I care about trainees. They're a natural resource that we need to preserve. And a danger is burnout, cynicism. I'm going to give a qualitative reflection first. And that is when a patient says to a trainee, I just love seeing you. You are the best clinician I've ever had an encounter with. That can make a person's whole day or whole clinic experience. And to speak at a neuroscientific level, that generates dopamine and oxytocin, those chemicals in the brain that are the we chemicals. We're a team. I enjoy seeing you. That is sustaining. I want trainees to have that experience. Now I'm going to speak from the literature. When clinicians pick up on emotional clues and respond with empathy, observed empathic statements, the visits are shorter. I can imagine that the reason is that people feel heard when empathic statements are made and they feel that they don't need to keep driving home the same point over and over, which then allows the alliance to be stronger between the trainee and the patient and to move forward with other material once the patient feels that they have been heard. I'd also like to ask you about the concept of adversity, with the textbook definition being a state or instance of continued difficulty. Many of us swim against unseen or countervailing currents that flow from society, culture, institutional norms, and even sometimes the minds of some people we interact with. Reflecting back on your early career, can you identify any examples of adversities that you faced? And could you talk about how facing them shaped your personal and professional growth? As an African-American woman, 
the reality was that the structure of society and how resources were channeled, especially in the bad old days of my primary and secondary education, as well as medical school. Race and gender, my gender as a woman and my race as Black, were ground for adversity because of um, structures, structural racism, structural sexism. A lived experience I had was that I don't believe I had any African-American women mentors in medical school or internship. That was a missed, that was missed by me, uh, having mentors who shared salient identities and shared lived experience. My parents had to attend segregated schools and they were very fortunate to have received higher education as did my grandparents, but their choices were very restricted. So that is, that is the social context of my life and the structural racism and sexism unfortunately continue to live on. I'm very encouraged and determined to continue our work at UCSF in dismantling structural racism, structural sexism, structural xenophobia, structural linguicism, which is the prejudice and discrimination based on language. We're, we're learning so much, and I'm learning a lot too. But that is a reality of my life, and I'm grateful to um, know that some of the immunization that can help learners junior colleagues in academic medicine. This is from Claude Steele and Josh Aronson's work about stereotype threat. We can immunize people against some of the bias, discrimination, and the resulting stereotype threat by inviting self-affirmation. Such a simple and beautiful tool that can help people be less affected. We still have to dismantle those the adversity that that people may unfairly encounter. But we can also invite people to talk about their successes and about what they're good at in healthcare and even outside of healthcare that can help people navigate ongoing adversities related to marginalized identities. When you think of the adversities you faced early in your life, do you think those experiences affected your approach to patient care or made you more mindful of certain dynamics in the clinical encounter? Yes, thank you so much. My first response is I didn't know enough about how identities were at play in clinical encounters early on. I wish that I had had faculty who brought that into their teaching. That wasn't the landscape of academic medicine at the time. It is now uh, at UCSF in the way that we be, are, I hope, training um, you know, most of the, the learners in our environment. That's an important aspect of, of clinical care to recognize. And one of the questions I ask when I give presentations on communication, equity, and inclusion, asking 
trainees and asking faculty, how do you think patients see you when you walk in the room? That's an important thing to think about so that we respond in wise and effective ways and anticipate how people are going to see us. I'll give an example at the VA as a woman treating a population of patients who are mostly male. That has an impact. I am not the same to them as a male clinician. And so in actually saying that to my male patients, here I am, a middle-aged woman. I don't know what it's like to be a veteran. I don't know what it's like to be a man. And I'm really interested in whatever it is that you want to tell me about your life and about your concerns. And I've had patients then laugh and say, yeah, it is pretty weird. And I am seeing you as my primary care physician, but you're my doctor, so I'll tell you the truth. That helps us in our alliance, and that names a difference that is very salient for those male patients that I'm a woman and therefore I have a different experience than they do. Those are just wonderful examples that you provided. In particular, a phrase that you used has stuck with me, that we must dismantle the structures of inequity that continue to exist. You mentioned a few specific actionable behaviors in this regard, self-affirmation, naming differences, and exploring reflexivity. That is, how is my identity affecting or shaping a given situation or encounter? For our listeners out there, can you provide any specific exercises or thought experiments that they can play out in their minds today, tomorrow, as they drive to work, walk into clinic, that might help them participate in this goal of dismantling the structures of inequity, as you say? My first thought is recognizing that implicit bias is present frequently, if not all the time. An implicit bias is not a moral failing, it's a feature of the human brain. It's the broad brushstroke with which we see people in situations. It can be helpful as we think about the 55-year-old man with crushing chest pain radiating to his left arm who is sweating and nauseated. He may indeed have acute coronary syndrome, but that's not the only thing he may have. And we can, uh, in, in a minority of those cases, there may be something else going on pulmonary embolus, pneumonia. He may have a malignancy. Uh, so thinking very uh, carefully about how the patterns that we see may help us, but they may also hurt us. And implicit bias based on identity is active in most of our minds. One way to counter that and I'm calling on the work of Diana Burgess at University of Minnesota, is that personal narratives break open and decrease implicit bias. A brief story, either given when I walk in the room to a patient and I give a more elaborative introduction about my nine years at the VA, my 
training as a general internist, which means that I treat adults and I'm focused on prevention of illness, diagnosis of illness, and treatment of illness, and that I'm a recovering Midwesterner. I moved here from Kirkwood, Missouri. Those brief stories that take about 10 seconds to tell may actually help break open any bias that the patient has towards me. That is skillful. Now, eliciting a story from a patient can also help reduce our implicit bias as clinicians about who the patient is. So instead of seeing them as just another and then fill in the blank, we begin to appreciate that Mr. Smith loves fishing and has a stepdaughter at home who has a developmental disorder that he really wants to protect from COVID. And he doesn't want to come in face to face for his visits with me. This gives me a sense of compassion and respect about his social determinants. This has been so helpful to me. And as we try to structure this into our training of clinicians and educators, so this becomes the standard and the, our standard operating procedure. This is going to help reduce implicit bias and its negative effects on relationships. I think those are all wonderful thought experiments and exercises and insights that will help all of us get better as clinicians and communicators. I want to be mindful of your time and have one last question for you. This pandemic year has been impossibly difficult for all of us for reasons shared and reasons unique. And communication has been strained during this year for a multitude of reasons. We're partitioned by distance of miles, by not being able to travel and see each other, by physical distancing, six feet between each person, by physical barriers like masks and visors that we wear over our faces. Perhaps we could say, before COVID, we had barriers to communication that were unseen, which are now joined by new barriers that are physical and visible and necessary for reasons of health and safety. And perhaps these new barriers of the face and mind, they risk masking our humanity and not just respiratory droplets. What advice do you have for our listeners who are just now developing their identities in clinical medicine, but have found themselves in this pandemic which is perhaps a threat to developing the communication skills they were meant to develop. What would you say to them? First, I would say find someone with whom you can be vulnerable. Don't repeat the mistakes I made. I'm a recovering lone wolf. And earlier in my career, I really did not have a sense of the importance of being able to share my strains my concerns, my difficulties, my near misses, and my errors. I, I didn't have a sense of the importance of sharing my development over time. I've learned how important that is to my, uh, to my learning, to my development as a human being. The second is learning how to decode and encode emotion. So from behind the mask, I'm, and I'm learning this over time, to say to patients, I want to let you know I'm smiling. Or on the telephone, many of my patients actually do not have devices 
through which they can carry on video visits. So being able to say on the telephone, I want to let you know I'm nodding or I'm frowning because I'm hearing that you're not taking the steps really that have been proven by science to protect you from getting infected. How do you, now that you hear that I'm frowning, Mr. Smith, what do you think? That encoding of emotion, even across barriers, is extremely important. And the decoding, really reading between the lines with our colleagues, with our, our patients. Well, I think those are all very specific and helpful exercises that we can all be more mindful of during this extremely difficult period of time during COVID. I think with the vaccines, we're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel, signs that there's a brighter day ahead. Dr. Davis, I just wanted to express my thanks to you for making the time to talk today and for sharing your wisdom and shining your light on all of us who are trying every day to become better clinicians. So thank you, thank you, thank you. My pleasure. I hope to be a better learner and a better teacher tomorrow. It's an ongoing process that stretches out to the horizon. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Master Clinician Project, featuring the truly great Dr. Denise Davis. You can find us online at www.masterclinicianproject.com, on Twitter at mcproject12, or as an audio-only podcast on Spotify or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us as we endeavor to learn from the very best clinicians. See you next time.